Welcome to Sagittarius I Audio Edition, Issue 6, February 3304. Word for word, the articles that appear in this month's Sagittarius I magazine, expertly recorded to keep you entertained and informed out in the black. Editorial The first month of 3304 has elapsed without leaving much of a trace. We have become callously accustomed to the thogoid attacks that, with disturbing regularity, continue to plague the Pleiades sector, and human affairs in the bubble carry on without much disruption. So for this February issue of Sagittarius Eye, we have chosen to look backwards, recounting and analysing the events in our past that shape our present. A detailed timeline summarising the turbulent events that have shaken the bubble's political landscape from 3300 to the present, sets the stage for in-depth critical reports on the development of two very different but extremely influential organizations, the Sirius Corporation and the Canon Research Group. We will be remiss not to keep our eye on current affairs thought, and so we bring to your attention two praiseworthy initiatives that have emerged from the goodwill of independent commanders of the Pilots' Federation, as well as speculating on new upcoming ships and technology. The first issue of Sagittarius Eye was published just over six months ago, something of a minor milestone for us, and a goal that would not have been possible to achieve without the overwhelming enthusiastic feedback we received from our readers. We think that we have slowly but steadily improved the look, feel and content of our magazine over the last six months, achieving a well-defined editorial identity. The next big milestone now lies six months ahead of us. We hope that our growth will continue steadily and we will endeavor to keep bringing you high quality and insightful content. Thanks for your support. The Race to Rescue the Enigma On the 12th of January, a fleet of 577 ships gathered at Jackson's Lighthouse. Their mission? Deliver medical and tactical data to Colonia, more specifically, the megaship Dove Enigma. With Thargoid activity on the rise and the threat of interspecies war at the forefront of people's minds, many are now beginning to turn their gaze toward Colonia. In the event of such conflict, the ever-growing bastion of humanity some 22,000 light-years away is likely to be the destination of uncountable refugees. Many of humanity's finest medical minds are today struggling to deal with the injuries suffered by the victims of the strange organic spaceships that have been attacking Aegis facilities in the Pleiades. The data carried by the Enigma expedition fleet was to be vital in coping with the crisis. However, as it always has been the case throughout history, there are some among us who would thwart our efforts. It was reported on the 30th of January that the relief mission's destination had been sabotaged. Through local black market facilities, a number of Thargoid sensors, formerly known as Unknown Artifacts or UAs, were smuggled on board the Dove Enigma megaship where they caused the vessel to start malfunctioning. This threw the entire mission into jeopardy. The fleet's arrival date sat a mere two days after the sabotage occurred. Hope for the expedition seemed lost. However, the events that followed can only be described as one of the most remarkable displays of solidarity in our recent history. As word of the sabotage came back to the bubble, many observers felt compelled to do something about it. Within mere hours, it had been decided that this was not how history would look upon the fate of the Enigma expedition. 
Such careful planning and effort for such a noble cause was not going to be wrecked by the work of a poisonous few. This turn of events was not going to be accepted. Pilots plotted their routes to the Pleiades in search of the expedition's salvation. Meta-alloys, the strange fruits of the barnacles that litter airless worlds in the Pleiades. Some sought out the barnacle forests. Others, at great personal expense, traveled to Danielle's progress in Maya, where the meta-alloys are stockpiled, and purchased large batches to deliver with dedicated haulage vessels. Over a period of less than 24 hours, one of the largest independent fleets in the history of humanity had begun what would be for some the most arduous journey of their lives, nearly totally spontaneously. Pilots from both the Imperial and Federal navies, along with Alliance operatives and independent commanders, all worked together without regard for rivalries or allegiances. This was an expression of solidarity for humanity as a whole. In total, some five to ten thousand courageous pilots had decided to undertake the race to save the Dove Enigma. The rescue fleet began to arrive in Colonia with only 24 hours from conception in mere trickles. As the vanguard of the Armada arrived in highly engineered vessels designed for exploration, some of these pilots had not even slept in order to reach their destination in time. Quickly, though, the trickle became a torrent as thousands of meta-alloys began to flood into the Dove Enigma. The station engineers worked tirelessly as supplies arrived to bring station services back online and protect the vessel from further Thargoid sensor interference. Not a moment too soon. Enigma's mission had been rescued. The expedition fleet arrived shortly thereafter at the repaired megaship. Their mission complete, they delivered the essential data to the waiting Colonia medical officers. Commander DJ Truthseer was among the Enigma Armada. As the leader of the Sovereignty, a powerful organization governing the Brestler system and its environs, he was well placed to leverage support for the initiative. He didn't leave the bridge of his anaconda, the Ledley King, for over 18 hours. Coordinating with his comrades in the Sovereignty, 349 tons of meta-alloys were rapidly loaded aboard the ship. No sooner had his limpets collected the final ton that he pointed his ship out into the black. The heavy payload reduced his vessel's jump range significantly. But just after midday on the 31st of January, he arrived at the Dove Enigma to deliver his cargo. Sagittarius I caught up with him in the hours after the rescue was completed. There was outrage at first, followed by a sense of directed purpose. There was a problem, and it needed fixing quickly, so we decided to fix it. We took our ships and we dealt with the problem, because that's what commanders do. This is but one example of the brave actions that were taken over that two-day period. It was, unquestionably, one of the greatest displays of human determination and defiance we have memory of. There will always be those who try to hold us back. Historians remember those skeptics who, 1,400 years ago, told Wilbur and Orville Wright that humans were never supposed to fly. Today, we have the power to cross our galaxy. Let it be known, if one person wishes to shout no, there will be thousands who will shout back yes. Operation Ida, saving the Pleiades. As every reader will know at this point, and if you don't, all last issue will help you get up to speed. 
The ammonia-based aliens have been crawling all over the Pleiades for a while now, and recently they've started hitting back against all us space monkeys out there. The jury remains firmly out on who started it, but started it has been. Recently, the Thogoids had been conducting hit-and-run strikes on our stations in their area, killing thousands of people and severely damaging the infrastructure vital to a functioning interstellar economy. After the brave and desperate rescue missions flown by thousands of pilots to evacuate people from the burning stations, the team has come to total up the material damage. Each station requires thousands of tons of repair materials, and at the time of writing there are 11 stations in desperate need of repairs. It is a daunting and seemingly insurmountable task. While most people were still relying from the attacks and discussing the enormity of the task ahead, Commander Fett Lee quickly organized Operation Ida with this simple statement. As many of you are probably aware, there are many damaged stations out there. I'd like to start a loosely organized group of pilots that aims to start to repair said stations. In my eyes, there is nothing to discuss about this. There have been civil stations attacked, and although Aegis's intents cannot be clearly judged as good or bad, their stations are part of a critical infrastructure in the Pleiades region and home to many civilians. The response was immediate and extremely positive. Pilots from all over human space started signing up and Commander Fettley quickly set up a virtual space to help organize teams. The first objective for Operations Ida was to get a single station up and running, the Oracle. Located in the central player of the sector, ER-WD1-55. We were lucky enough to get a few minutes with Commander Fettley while he was organizing the next shipment to the beleaguered station. The commander met us aboard his Type 10 Defender, the new ship already showing signs of wear and tear and what looked like large caliber munitions dense in the thick armor. Fettley is looking somewhat frazzled and there are at least five datapads piled up on the console showing various market breakdowns and shipping routes. The main display shows his virtual meeting place with a long list of fellow commanders discussing the current supply numbers and best routes to follow. Sucking coffee from a zero-g squeeze bulb, Fettley closes down the console and rolls his shoulders before our meeting. It's clear that the efforts to organize the station repairs weighed heavily on him. Thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk to us. Some people have said that the station requires an impossible amount to repair, but you clearly believe it's possible. Is that blind faith or did you work it out mathematically? My faith is limited. It's more about getting the repair engine started. In the end, those numbers are finite and they have been hauled before. How hard could it be? At least, that was my first guess. Later, I checked how many cutter runs it would take to repair one station. The answer is about 15,000. If we have 100 commanders doing 10 runs per day, it takes 15 days. All of that doesn't sound too unreasonable, does it? But in the end, let's remember those numbers are just finite. At what point did you realize there needed to be a significant organized response to repair the stations? I didn't realize that it was needed. I just saw the lack of it and enjoyed the thought of it. I wouldn't have imagined that we can get about 175 commanders joining us in just 12 days. I hadn't planned anything, I just wanted it to get started. Do you have a priority list to work on? Obsidian Orbital is obviously a key touchstone for many people in the Pleiades. Is that next on your list? We definitely have a priority list. Right now we're working on the Oracle. It was the first station to be damaged 
and the numbers are moderate there. We saw the opportunity to prove the possibility of repairing a station to the galaxy. We're loosely planning to repair Silene Orbital next. It's a refinery station which is badly needed for repairing other stations. We're yet planning to repair Obsidian Orbital. As it stands, there are enough people getting it on the way. Doesn't seem like they need our help at the moment, and a bit of competition is always a good motivator. Let's see who finishes first. This is obviously a huge project to organize and coordinate. Who has been helping you out with this? There are two commanders standing out. Those are Commander Ninja and Commander Relics Typhon. Those two had a loose group ongoing before Operation Ida was founded. We relatively quickly came to the point that it would be beneficial to both operations to work together cooperatively. That was a key moment and a huge boost for motivation. Also not to forget the Hutton Orbital Truckers. I guess most of us know those commanders for their dedication to moving large piles of commodities, so I reached out to them and asked whether they'd join our operation. They did. We have a separate internal project that broadcasts our priorities to their members. That's a huge plus. Also, the 77th Federal Strike Division offered to do caravan protection jobs, in case there are bad guys out there. It's good to have them covering our back. And last but not least, I think Commander Obsidian Ant did a very important job of covering us in the news. That led to about 100 commanders joining us in one day. Without him, we would have never been able to grow that fast. Before you started this crusade, what were you up to in the galaxy? I was more engaged in helping the Alliance grow. I was doing classified operations for the AEDC to spread some freedom in the galaxy. But that should not get mixed up with Operation Ida. It has nothing to do with each other. I think for this operation, we need to stand together as humans to work for some humanitarian relief. We don't care what the commanders joining us did before or will do in the future. Right now, they're basically improving the lives of thousands of others. To anyone wanting to join Operation IDA, what is the best way to get started? Search on the public message boards for Operation IDA and you'll find us. On Operation IDA's virtual meeting space, you can find lists of supplies needed as well as frequently updated recommended starports to pick up the goods necessary. Recently, we received word that Canon's megaship the Gnosis is making a jump back to the Tijeta system to help with the repair efforts. Many argue that what humanity does best is go to war, and there certainly is ample evidence for that. But there is also a massive and growing body of evidence that humanity's true strength lies in our ability to band together against apparently insurmountable odds and pull our collective efforts to achieve something astounding. The pilots of Operation IDA and the other groups tirelessly shooting materials to the wounded stations are proof positive of this resolve. Federal Reclamation Co. The Thin Red Line. With the retreat of the Federal Navy from the Pleiades sector, beginning on the 7th of October 3303, many Federal citizens who occupied the few starports in the area were left unsure of their fates. Paranoia and desperation multiplied amongst these citizens as reports and later confirmations of the return of the Thargoids came to light. These Federal citizens, alone and afraid in the black, waited defeated for the new year, and the Thargoids swarmed to come to their door. But death and destruction did not come. Instead, the brave commanders of the Federal Reclamation Company, FRC, flew out into the black, hard points ablaze with fire and plasma to hold back the horde, allowing vital supplies to be transported to the most distant communities in the Pleiades sector. The FRC is a federal-aligned corporate government that, instead of claiming one system as their home, 
work across the entirety of Federation space in an attempt to aid any Federal pilot or citizen in need. They also mount regular excursions, numbering around 12 pilots in total, to areas within the Pleiades sector where Thargoids have been spotted. The most recent mission was on January the 20th, 3304. Why would this Federal-aligned government pick up the work that the Federation itself abandoned? The answer is Commander Mackenheimer, squadron leader of the FRC organisation and the pilot credited for organising the group's first anti-Thargoid operations. Sagittarius I spoke to Commander Mackenheimer to ask how the Federal Reclamation Company got itself involved in the affair of the Pleiades. Our attacks on Thargoids are a part of our overall directive to protect Federal citizens. The very first Thargoid attacks were on Federal Navy vessels, and for a long time Federal ships were the only ships attacked by Thargoids. I predicted that they would only grow more bold and aggressive, and have been proven correct again and again. Although I was the one who started our anti-Thargoid activities for the FRC, many members of the group are involved in planning and participating in our ops. The latest one was organized by Commander Enterprise. It would seem then that this shift of attention towards a response to the Thargoids in the Pleiades is not an abandonment of its duties within Federal space, but rather an extension of its operational reach, a soothing thought for any readers who regularly rely on FRC support in human space. Yet, yeah, is this what is to be expected of a faction in 3304, to be stretched between protecting helpless pilots with inhabited space as well as those on the frontier? A cynical observer could reasonably ask why the superpowers themselves are not shouldering this burden. Are they expecting a Thargoid incursion into the bubble? To be honest, I'm a little disappointed at the Federation's response. I know that Hudson is the only leader truly advocating force against the Thargoids, but the Federal Navy still withdrew from the Pleiades sector. I think that was a mistake. I recognize that Farragut's are vulnerable to the EMP fields, but smaller crafts can be protected. There's thousands of Federal citizens out there that have been left to fend for themselves. I do my best to protect the few that I can, and the FRC does its part to make sure supply lines stay open. We've been asked to choose between Federal citizens, not between human lives or alien lives. To me, it's a no-brainer. How Hudson can see it another way is beyond me. The Thargoids seem content to stay in their territory, a bubble 165-ish light-years around Merope. They appear to be consolidating their forces. They are studying us as much as we are studying them. It's only a matter of time before they start incursion into the bubble. They don't seem to recognize territory in a human way. I think the only way to dissuade them from moving towards the bubble is overwhelming aggression from humanity. If they could or wanted to communicate with us, they would have done so already. Coming from someone who has been in constant conflict with the aliens since last year, this is a sobering thought, yet the commanders of the Federal Reclamation Company are not alone. Over the last few months, the galaxy has seen a huge increase in members of the Pilots' Federation taking part. For these daring pilots, Commander Mackenheimer has these words of advice. To fight the Cyclops variant solo, you will want an Anaconda, AFID at minimum, heavily engineered if possible. Four large AX multi-cannons, fixed if you are okay with fixed, turreted if not. Two flak launchers and two small turreted beam lasers. You need a Xeno scanner, shutdown field neutralizer, a heatsink, and a lot of shield boosters. For internals, you want the biggest bi-weave or prismatic shield generator possible. 
a couple of 6A shield cell banks, a class 6 fighter bay, and the rest all hull reinforcement packs and module reinforcement packs. Remember that they're not invincible. Don't throw your life away. If you get below 50% hull, leave. High wake if you have to. The swarm is the main threat, so deal with it first. Practice makes perfect. Only the best of the best can solo a Cyclops on their first try. Stay positive. As a closing statement, Commander Mackenheimer had this thought to share with the galaxy. I would just like to remind everyone that the Thargoids attacked our stations. And they take our occupied escape pods every chance they get. Those people are never heard from again. These are someone's son or daughter, mother or father, husband or wife. Remember that when you choose to believe that they come in peace, or that we started this war. Perez Ring Brewery, the next galactic power? Not many can say they remember the date when, in late 3301, a small family-run brewery started the sale of beer in the LHS 2637 system, with a population of barley 11 million people. Today, few can say they haven't heard of the multi-system corporation, which has boomed in the Alioth cluster. As of the 3304 census, an incredible population of 55 billion... 509,809,319 souls live on worlds and stations governed by the Perez Ring Brewery, PRB, making it one of the most populous minor factions in human-inhabited space. In this exclusive report, Sagittarius I was able to secure a few words with members of AID, the group of directors solely responsible for the brewery's success. It only takes a few minutes of conversation with any faction leader to determine that expanding one's governance into another system is a logistical nightmare fraught with dangers and setbacks. Yet, for AID, expanding operations into new star systems have been perfected into a near art form, but being the biggest faction by population size was not an initial goal for the group. Becoming the most populous faction was not a concrete goal for the PRB. During our humble beginnings in LHS-2637, the sale of Perez beer was originally supposed to be financing auxiliary operations of aid. The newly founded company was, however, so successful that it quickly developed into an important stabilizing factor in the region. Since then, both humanitarian as well as economic interests have been driving our expansions. Possible target systems for expansion undergo an extensive analysis of different factors such as the situation of the markets, but also social conditions are taken into account. So the PRB liberated, to give some examples, Orshis from slavery-funded dictatorship and recently STF-1774, which had a corrupt government. The immediate goal in such systems is then to improve the living conditions of the population. Hebo and Al-Qaeda, on the other hand, were important strategic markets which were required to cover the increasing demand of resources generated by our production of Perez beer. Over time, it became clear to us that we are slowly becoming the largest faction. Naturally, we were excited. Our success is also the success of freedom and democracy, after all. Yet what motivates the pilots who have turned the once small backwater brewery into the massive corporation that it is now today? Is it the chance to gain from the trade brought through the busy starports? Is it the hop of expanding the reach of the Alliance, 
The members of AID describe it thus. The main motivation of our brave pirates is the struggle for freedom and justice. This may sound like buzzwords, but our actions speak for themselves. Advocating freedom was the founding motivation which made our group, AID, evolve from the Kivira War and its aftermath, the support of refugees in the Sumerland system in May 3301. After that, we have worked hard across many systems to turn Alios cluster region into the melting point of human rights in the galaxy. By now, almost all systems there have joined the Alliance. In the meantime, our pilots were also significantly involved in the repeated defense of peace in the old worlds and the creation of Prime Minister Mahon's thread network. Since our foundation, the core mentality of our members has not changed. Coupled with the logistical nightmare of expansion are the inherent problems of resulting social discord and necessary re-education. A potential problem that could foment within newly acquired territory is that populace freed from a feudal or dictatorship-style government could find it hard to adjust to democracy. AID and the Perez Ring Brewery seem to have found ways to overcome these problems. By the use of numerous social initiatives, investments in education and the re-establishment of constitutional norms like elections, we are able to fundamentally improve the living conditions in a system. At the same time, we reform the administration and eliminate unnecessary bureaucracy. Without this, an integration into our information and logistical networks would probably be impossible. We ultimately also end up boosting the economy by doing it. But can a person be free under a corporation? Can democracy thrive in both the boardroom and the lives of those under corporate rule? Outsiders often get the misleading impression that under the administration of PRB, a corporation, democracy would not be possible. We believe, though, that we actually make things better than some who claim to be democratic. Naturally, we do have regular elections to form regional parliaments in all our systems. Their representatives have final word regarding local politics. In the case of an emergency, the PRB Vice President Roger Clay has the authority to make quick decisions. The parliaments are regularly reviewed by the supervisory board of the company to prevent corruption and partisan politics. With the free and secret voting supervised by election observers of the Alliance, the citizens always have the option to secede from PRB administration, so the people always remain the real sovereign. The retreat from Viruluk in 3303, where the people had favoured another faction's administration, is a good example for such a case. Can a corporation defend and protect all of its citizens in a time of widespread galactic crime, as well as the resurgence of a violent alien species. The PRB keeps the systems under its administration safe through a synergy of multiple factors. Notably, we have always managed to find a peaceful and democratic way to expand, as previously mentioned. We made no enemies except for a few unnoteworthy criminal syndicates and dictators which we have taken care of long ago. We are well connected and benefit from good diplomatic relations with a range of factions both within the Alliance and outside of it. This has led to a number of defensive coalitions. Our fleet might not be the biggest one, but we can still rely on our reputation. In fact, our local system police forces and Alliance defense fleet the ADF, contingents often receive help from independent commanders who are 
eager to assist our cause. So what's over the horizon for what can plausibly be claimed to be the bubble's largest faction? The members of AID have set their sights on bringing the famous Perez beer brand to an even wider audience. Our famous Perez beer is currently only available in some selected localities such as the Liberté Bar on the Perez Ring, LHS 2637. In the near future, we hope to realize our plans for a galaxy-wide export so that people can benefit from Perez beer's taste at the same time support our peace and freedom efforts in accordance with the policies of the Alliance. We are currently in dialogue with the Galactic Trade Organization, the GTO, regarding our distribution license for our beer as an official rare commodity. <laughs> Apart from this, our mission is not over yet, and our motivation is just as optimistic as it was the first day. The Alliance, one of the major superpowers within the bubble, is set to hold their next set of elections soon. Could the Perez Ring Brewery's popular vice president, Roger Clay, position himself as a possible prime minister of the Alliance? The brewery's representatives were reluctant to comment. At yeast, the galaxy's drinkers can be sure that, as well as good cheer, their favourite tipple is spreading democratic values throughout space. Sirius Corp. Profits before pilots? It's impossible to travel anywhere in known space without seeing the sharp S of the Sirius logo stamped on something. The vast majority of people don't know that it's actually the name of what used to be the brightest star in the night sky of old Earth and our distant planet-bound ancestors used to call it the Dog Star, reflecting its prominence in the constellation Canis Major, Greater Dog. This is because the nearby Orion constellation was known as the Hunter. A dog is an animal from ancient Earth that was domesticated and used to assist in hunting. During the early diaspora from Earth, the precursors of the Sirius Corporation were the first to actually send out a colonizing mission in 2339, with the intention of using the destination star as a business asset. Deliberately heading to a system with no known habitable worlds was a massive risk, both financially and in humanitarian terms. The Sirius venture was, of course, immensely successful. The corporation was able to quickly establish a viable colony and develop the infrastructure necessary to leverage the enormous power potential of the bright white main sequence star, Sirius A. The Sirius Corporation was officially founded in 2350. The fledgling corporation was able to rapidly synthesize custom elements, including military-grade fuel in vast quantities, giving it a near monopoly in production that would last for centuries. Sirius quickly increased its financial status as a result of supplying the war fleets of both the Federation and Empire during the First Interstellar War. Sirius in the 34th century is a sprawling corporation, larger and more complex than many governments. It has a great many subsidiaries, primarily centered around fusion reactors, fuel and drive production. Sirius governs dozens of systems with billions of people and provides governmental services under the umbrella of Sirius Gov. It operates product and service-oriented divisions such as Sirius Catering, Sirius Power, and Sirius Luxury Transports. In addition to these consumer-level corporations, Sirius has its own navy, with ships primarily made by the Imperial Gotamaya Yards. It also has a large hand in terraforming under the brand Sirius Atmospherics, 
bespoke heavy industrial installations for smelting, refining, processing, and manufacturing as serious industrial and mining services and infrastructure under serious mining. The development of frameshift drives in the 3290s reinvigorated the declining fortunes of Sirius across all aspects of the corporation, not least interstellar exploration. In March 3301, Sirius embarked on a huge expansion into nine new systems for the first time in decades. Since then, the corporation has been involved with an increasing range of activities, including a continuous expansion into new territories and providing assistance to the development of a counter to the Thargoid sensor interference that plagues many starports. The Lee Dynasty's involvement with the Sirius Corporation can be traced back to the company's founding almost a thousand years ago. By the age of 25, young Rui had earned doctorates in physics, politics, and economics. He was hired by Sirius straight from college. He quickly made his way up the ranks and at the tender age of 35 was made vice president of forecasting. Now, at 104 years of age, CEO young Rui has seen Sirius reach further than ever before. He has a proven track record in business, but has also demonstrated significant insight in the fuzzier arts and, in particular, the art of government. With these skills, he was considered the ideal candidate for Sirius Corporation's new Sirius Gov division. Systems under the control of Young Rui grant a 15% discount on all outfitting services for members of the Pilots' Federation. Many see this as proof that Sirius has finally reached a position in which financial concerns are secondary to customer satisfaction, though others see it as an attempt to buy loyalty from the legion of increasingly influential independent pilots. Commenting on the Thargoid threat and the discovery of abandoned intergalactic naval reserve armed bases, Lee Yongrui stated in October 3303, If there is one thing these Inra logs make plain, it's that humanity is capable of defeating the Thargoids, especially when we work together. And remember, most of the galaxy is functioning exactly as it always has, despite the presence of these alien aggressors. So let's maintain some perspective, shall we? Such comments can be seen as emblematic of both the reserved optimism often shown by Lee and the isolation of the upper echelons of megacorporations nestled safely in the most heavily defended portions of human space. The open corporate governmental structure of Sirius Corporation and the benefits of association have also attracted many independent pilots in recent years. Commander McGaslin of Sirius Inc. gives an insight into the freedom their pilots enjoy. Sirius Inc. is an independent, democratic offshoot of the Sirius Corporation and member of the Galcop Coalition. Presently Sirius Inc. operates as a kind of public benefit corporation with a board of directors and internal promotion of active and competent members. However, we encourage the free exchange of ideas. In January of 3304, Sirius Inc. announced plans to construct a flight operations megaship in the 42 and Percy system which occupies a strategic position on the route to Maya. The vessel, which will be named the Dionysus, is hoped to dramatically improve services in 42 and Percy. Senior aide Umberto Guthrie, speaking on behalf of Sirius Inc., released the following statement. We are disturbed by recent events in the Pleiades and the vulnerability of our systems. If the superpowers cannot protect us, 
We will protect ourselves. Hundreds of independent commanders supported the campaign by delivering commodities to green enterprises in the Engalia system, and by eliminating agitators in Engalia, thereby ensuring the safety of traders contributing to the initiative. Many other groups of pilots identify with other aspects of the vast Cirrus corporate dynasty. A couple of notables include the Pan-Galactic Mining Corp, headed by Commander Matsov, which operates predominantly as a talking shop for swapping mining tips, tricks, and best practice, and the Guardians of Tranquility who run Tranquility Station in the Tarak Tor system. This group forged a partnership with Sirius Corp to help them protect their heritage, the rare Tarak Spice. As with any political or corporate entity, in this case both, Sirius Corp is dogged by rumors of misconduct, price-fixing, espionage, and virtually every other crime there is. It's important to note that no accusation has stuck, though this may have as much to do with the corporation's virtually infinite legal budget as much as any culpability. In August last year, Ceres abstained from the Federation Empire scuffle in the Pleiades over the alien barnacles, but did coincidentally establish mining support outposts in Meripi. Daxton Sung of the Imperial Herald commented, Right now, the Federation controls Merope, but Sirius is playing the long game. They've positioned themselves close to the barnacles so that if the Federation pulls out of the system, they can swoop in and start hoovering up meta-alloys. This isn't the first time the Corporation has been accused of playing the superpowers off against each other. In historical archives, there are suggestions that the early Sirius Corporation deliberately prolonged the war between the Empire and Federation in order to make greater profits from the sale of fuel and materials to both sides. Around October of 3302, Sirius appeared to be heroes to a small company called MetaDrive, whose mismanagement had caused a near-total collapse. Sirius purchased the company saving the jobs of all the staff and acquiring the rights to the new technologies reportedly under development. Unsurprisingly, rumors surrounded the sudden buyout, specifically regarding a scramble of activity between several police agencies to locate an ex-MetaDrive employee, Ra'an Corson, who seemingly disappeared in Alliance space. Rumors persist that Sirius caught wind of a new stealth hyperdrive development and, via some form of covert manipulation, engineered the buyout of MetaDrive and all its research. Corson allegedly, took the research files to the Alliance rather than let Sirius have them. Over 50 years ago, in 3251, Sirius launched the Highliner Antares as a much-publicized reveal of a new Type 3 fast hyperdrive technology. The ship suffered a catastrophic failure and was lost with all hands. Almost four decades later, the frameshift drive was released by Sirius, and initially, any connection to the failed Type 3 drives were denied, despite many functional similarities. However, in 3301, when then-President Halsley's official starship catastrophically malfunctioned, links were drawn between Sirius's failed Antares and the President's Starship One disaster. This link was further underlined when Federal Times reporter Elaine Boyd investigated and discovered a spate of accidental deaths that, she alleged, proved the connection between Sirius and what some were calling the attempted assassination of the President. 
Elaine Boyd's investigation was cut short by her apparent suicide after being implicated in the very murders she was investigating. Later, the full report by Boyd was released via Dead Man program, apparently activated upon her death. Sirius was again able to shake off this potential scandal with ease. To many people, Sirius represents a physical manifestation of the axiom, do more good than harm. It's undoubtedly true that Sirius has done a great deal of good over the near millennium that it has been around. It's also certainly true that, to date, no accusation of wrongdoing leveled against the megacorporation has stuck, or even really made a dent in the public gloss. Ultimately, it's up to each and every person to make the decision whether to keep buying Sirius, in every sense of the word, or to take a stand against what many feel is an incarnation of all that's wrong with unbridled capitalism. Timeline. Three trailblazing years. Just over 13 years ago, something monumental happened in the history of humankind. In 3290, the Sirius Corporation, covered elsewhere in this issue, unveiled their new consumer-grade hyperdrive. At the time, only wealthy private individuals were in a position to benefit from this development, and its import went relatively unnoticed. However, over the next decade, manufacturers all over the galaxy licensed and improved the technology. By 3300, commercial frameshift drives became widely available, and the first pioneering independent pilots started making forays out into the black. The ramifications of this democratisation of galactic travel have been felt all over inhabited space, with leagues of pilots taking to the stars. In this feature, Sagittarius I takes a look at what's happened in our recent history since that landmark moment. 3300. The Empire began undergoing the contortions that would reshape its internal structure. The Emperor, Hengist Duval, was announced to be unwell, igniting a frenzy of speculation and intrigue among the upper echelons of Imperial society. While Hengist's son Harold was dismissed as not of sound mind, the little-known senator Arissa Lavigny declared herself the Emperor's illegitimate daughter. Denton Petraeus? somewhat cryptically, implied that he would back her claim to the throne, announcing that imperial succession is about power, not blood. Meanwhile, the ideological divides at the top of the Federation widened, with the authoritarian president, Jasmina Halsey, cracking down on narcotics and the opposition shadow president, Zachary Hudson, calling for lower taxes. However, few suspected what would happen, the following year. 3301. That January, Vice President Nigel Smeaton was found floating, face down, in his swimming pool on Mars. The Federation hadn't seen this level of political sensation for years. As speculation boiled, that spring, President Halsey came under increasing pressure over her heavy-handed approach to security issues in the Federation. 
Meanwhile, the now princess, Arissa, ordered a massive security drive of her own following an attempt on the life of her father, the emperor. In May, after weeks of frantic rumour-mongering, an unknown artefact was sighted in the custody of a federal convoy. The Cannon Research Group, also covered in this issue, formed to investigate. Meanwhile, on Mars, the beleaguered President Halsey departed on Starship One for a tour of the Federation frontier systems. The ship disappeared soon after, and Zachary Hudson assumed the presidency of the Federation in June. Halsey would return a changed woman, and she later joined the Alliance Prime Minister Edmund Mahan in an advisory capacity. In the Empire, a convalescing Hengist Duval prepared to marry Florence Lavigny. On his wedding day, Duval himself was assassinated by the group that would become known as Emperor's Dawn. That same autumn, Denton Petraeus's crusade against the organisation captivated imperial society, while Arissa Lavigny Duval was declared emperor, supported by a strong majority. That autumn also saw the emergence on the public scene of Professor Ishmael Palin, at the time still employed within the Federation. He led the first official inquiries into the unknown artefacts, which were mysteriously terminated only a few weeks later. Undeterred, he set up his own independent laboratory to investigate the spate of starport malfunctions linked to the alien artefacts which were being traded for huge sums. 33.02 Early the next year, not far from the Professor's new laboratory complex, new alien structures were discovered. These would become known as the Barnacles. The spring of 33.02 saw the launch of the single largest space expedition of all time, Distant Worlds was organised by independent pilots and included more than 1,400 ships. The expedition took place over several months and traversed the entire Milky Way galaxy, reaching the Beagle Point system. Shortly after the expedition came to an end, the famous cyborg Jacques tried to jump his travelling starport to Beagle Point himself. His attempt failed, and the station went missing, only to be discovered in a distant and unremarkable nebula close to the galactic core, a full 20,000 light-years away from Sol. When discovered, the starport was in desperate need of repair. That summer, hundreds of independent pilots made the long journey to bring the supplies he needed. The settlers soon began colonising the nebula, renaming it Colonia. Meanwhile, Kahina Loren was accused of an attempt on the Admiral of the Imperial Fleet Denton Petraeus's life. That autumn, she was tried and sentenced to life imprisonment in a trial which was widely labelled a sham. Outside the bubble, the first Guardian ruins were discovered. The galaxy was fascinated. However, this alien revelation was nothing compared with what would happen the following year. 33.03. In January, the first independent pilot was pulled out of hyperspace by what we now know to be a Thargoid ship. 
As the sightings mounted, both the Federation and the Empire mobilised military power in the Pleiades region, the region where both ships and barnacle sightings proved to be more common. The ratcheting rhetoric between the superpowers was condemned by the Alliance. Kahina Loren escaped before her prison transport could reach Kunt's asylum, kicking off an empire-wide manhunt. A group linked to her, the children of Raxla, assisted in the discovery of an abandoned megaship called the Zurara in the Formidine Rift. They also discovered abandoned surface settlements, apparently all part of a secret project called Dynasty the purpose of which was to create backup enclaves for humanity in the event of an existential threat. That existential threat was revealed to be the Thargoids themselves by Lorraine and her accomplices. She was killed and her ship destroyed in April of that year, but her message to the galaxy got through. The Federation, Alliance and Empire faced searching questions as to their knowledge of the Thargoids and Project Dynasty, as giant Thargoid wreckages were found on airless worlds in the Pleiades. That autumn, the Alliance, Federation and Empire formed Aegis, a joint initiative to develop new weapons and defences against what was by that point universally recognised as the Thargoid threat. One positive effect of this was the apparent de-escalation of tensions between the Empire and Federation. The Aegis Initiative began to arm independent pilots and navies with specially constructed weapons capable of damaging the Thargoid's vessels, who'd begun to attack human ships and ports in the Pleiades. However, an arresting reminder of the risks brought by the existence of unaccountable agencies was unearthed in the form of abandoned intergalactic naval reserve arm bases. The logs recovered from these sites told a chilling tale of humanity's last encounters with the Thargoids and provided a plausible motive for our becoming the subject of their anger now. Which brings us to 3304. The last few years have seen unparalleled examples of solidarity between strangers, as pilots adopted the new hyperdrives and took to the black. The Distant Worlds expedition, the fuel rats, cannon research, the development of Colonia, all these represent humbling efforts by hundreds of individuals acting in concert. However, we have also had our confidence in our political masters profoundly shaken, as we hadn't for decades. We now know that the Federation, the Empire and probably the Alliance colluded in atrocities which in all probability precipitated the current crisis. As the Thargoid attacks draw steadily closer to our core worlds, we can only hope that our timeline is allowed to continue for as many years into the future. Canon. Terrorists and warmongers? The last few years have been some of the most exciting in recent history. We've seen the death of an emperor, the disappearance of a president, and the return of humanity's most feared, most mysterious foes, the Thargoids. 
Canon interstellar research rose from the masses of independent commanders a short three years ago as the mysterious unknown artifacts or as we now know them Thargoid sensors began cropping up in civilized space. Canon has been at the forefront of humanity's recent scientific discoveries conducting experiments and running tests to reveal the hidden secrets of the cosmos. Dr R Canon, the groups founder has been quoted multiple times on Galnet News. For all that they seem to be heroes Canon has nonetheless a darker side. In the early history of Canon the Thargoid sensors had just appeared on our collective radar and were mostly held by federal convoys presumably transporting them to top secret research facilities. The early pioneers of Canon were not to be swayed by moral qualms and descended upon these convoys like common pirates stealing away the artifacts in order to conduct their own research. Additionally while attempting to discover their properties they performed dangerous experiments on these artifacts unsanctioned by any kind of external authority. Though Canon claims to be structured according to a loose hierarchy they did not hold their individual members to any standard of behaviour when it came to their research. They went so far as to demand the release of federal data on these artifacts and carried out merciless terror strikes on federal targets when their demands were not obeyed. These weren't the actions of a few errant minions either. Dr R Cannon himself condoned this behaviour. Of course this column has not hesitated to be critical of the federation in the past. Your correspondent campaigns for transparency wherever he sees it lacking but it is not always the enemies of the superpowers who are in the right. Information is the people's due but not at any cost and the true cost of Cannon's reckless behaviour is still to be determined. Apart from their attacks on the federation their release of top secret data directly to the public without concern for safety and their encouragement of untrained independent commanders performing their own unsupervised and dangerous experiments it has been alleged that their work may have precipitated the current conflict with the Thargoids that ravages the outer systems of our inhabited space and claims more lives every day. One might certainly argue that had Cannon's antics not played a significant part in destabilizing the power structure of the Pleiades the superpowers might have been able to contain the Thargoid menace to that region. There was no indication that the Thargoids were present at all before Cannon began tearing apart their probes, invading their barnacle sites and encouraging independent commanders to flood the sector and bring the Empire and Federation into conflict. They destroyed countless Thargoid sensors, probes and barnacles all the while claiming it was for science. Such destruction of property would certainly be considered an act of war if the Thargoids had done so to our technology or installations. Yet Cannon's recklessness goes even further. It has been alleged that Cannon scientists upon completing experiments with these Thargoid tools sold them on the black market to make quick credit. As most know such under the table dealing had inconvenient or even deadly consequences as the devices shut down station services all over the bubble leaving pilots unable to repair their ships or trade their goods. Realising now that their misdeeds have been slowly coming into the light Canon have extended their PR campaigns beyond Galnet onto their own news hub where they distribute information directly to their supporters. 
They list secret government projects publicly with the purpose of disrupting them. They steal information from independent government sites by scanning private data beacons and trespassing into classified areas. While they claim they are conducting this research for the benefit of the public it seems more plausible that they are simply doing whatever interests them consequences be damned. What we know for certain about Canon gives an open minded person pause. They have committed theft, vandalism, grave robbing, destruction of Thargoid property and desecration of Guardian sites. They have revealed top secret information, attacked government ships and stolen many if not all of their research materials. There are also whispers of kidnapping, attempted assassinations, murder, manipulation of the black market, terrorism and political manipulation on a massive scale. All one needs to do is investigate the evidence. Canon are not the helpful inspiring scientists they claim to be. They are dangerous, reckless and bringing us all nearer to destruction whether at the Thargoids appendages or our own hands. Fly safe commanders. Trust no one. Keep an eye on the sky. Rumored ships and modules. 3303 was somewhat of a lackluster year in terms of new ships. The only notable releases were the Type 10 from Lake on Spaceways in collaboration with the Alliance and the Saud Kruger Dolphin. We have higher hopes for this year. We have already seen the Lake on Spaceways chieftain dusting off for final tests. Another step forward in their nascent relationship with the Alliance. Sagittarius I will review this new ship in detail next month, but for now, we know that this medium sized ship will boast higher speed and more maneuverability than its similar sized counterparts. Another ship to look out for this year is the legendary Crate, a Falcon DeLacy model that hasn't been manufactured or sold for decades. Today, it can only be seen in museums and history books. But word has it that we'll be seeing this vintage model once again coursing the spaceways before too long. The Chieftain The Chieftain has higher maneuverability and speed than similar sized ships. However, this is not all it has in store. Very good core internal modules for a ship of its size and a variety of optional internal slots give the Chieftain pilot plenty of room for choice. On top of that, it also has three Class 4 military compartments reinforcing this ship's core role as a solid combat vessel. Offensively, the Chieftain sports small, medium, and large centrally mounted hardpoints. Certainly not something to scoff at, and all this backed up by four general purpose utility mounts. Overall, we're anticipating a ship that will be able to hold its own in a fight. Given its ability to bear significant AX weaponry, we can see pilots getting on well in fights against the Thargoids, both in gunship and support roles. The Chieftain is also, in this reporter's opinion, absolutely gorgeous visually. It will be interesting to see where this joint venture between Lacon and the Alliance takes us when it comes to future ship designs. Be sure to catch our in-depth review of the Chieftain in next month's issue. The Crate the crate is said to be a redesign of the old Falcon de Lacy model that hasn't been seen in active service for several decades. While not much is known about this redesigned ship, it is rumored to have a fighter bay facility, which would mean that it will have at least one Class 5 optional internal slot, as well as one or more Class 6 slots. 
Given this, we believe that the ship may have been developed as a counterpart to Core Dynamics' Federal gunship. This would be fantastic news for pilots who wish to utilize fighters in a medium-sized, combat-oriented ship, something that, up until now, has been restricted to Federation-ranked pilots. If these rumors are true, then the crate may have a familiar core internal layout too. The gunship has a Class 6 power plant, Class 6 thrusters, a Class 5 frameship drive, Class 5 life support, and a Class 7 power distributor. Keeping this in mind, it would be reasonable to speculate that the crate might have a hardpoint loadout that would make use of the larger power distributor. Building on this, and considering the leaked images of the redesign, we believe that it might have at least two large hardpoints. It's possible that it could also feature four medium hardpoints, which would bring it roughly up to par with a Federal gunship, replacing two small hardpoints with the extra large one. The crate also appears to have a far more industrial design compared to DeLacy's existing lineup, and the underslung cockpit placement is another unusual feature compared to all other currently released ships, DeLacy or otherwise. Upcoming modules. Alongside these new ships, a wave of entrepreneurs, known collectively as technology brokers, have begun popping up throughout the galaxy, offering exciting new modules. We've gathered leaked information on three new weapon types being distributed by these brokers. The Remote Release Flechetti Launcher, Shock Cannon, and the Enzyme Missile Racks. All of these weapons have a special effect of sorts. The Remote Release Flechetti Launcher ignores shields and does a small amount of damage to the target's hull and internal modules, though the damage is fairly negligible. Shock cannons feature an autoloader to automatically reload ammo while in use, have a high fire rate, and does higher damage if successive shots land. The downside to this, however, is that if the clip empties completely, then the weapon enters a slow reload cycle. The Enzyme Missile Racks are the module that this reporter finds most interesting. They seem to represent humanity's first commercial step into reverse engineering and adapting Thargoid technology for human use. Discounting the tinfoil rumors about frameship drives being reverse engineered from old Thargoid ships. Almost nothing is currently known about the last module in our list, the Meta-Alloy Hull Reinforcement. However, over a year ago, Professor Palin announced that he had found possible defensive applications for Meta-Alloys. We believe that it is likely that this module is the culmination of his research. These new modules seem fairly solid, however, all of them also have drawbacks. The added Thargoid-style caustic damage from the Emzine missile racks could make it well worth fitting at least one to your ship. However, there only seems to be a dumbfire version of this missile type currently under development. The remote-release flechetti launcher is likely to be the least used of the bunch in this reporter's opinion. While it does ignore shields, it inflicts minimal damage, and many pilots may struggle to find it worth fitting. Shock cannons have a low maximum ammo capacity, and, given their fire rate, this may be a big problem. In addition to all of this, all of the modules above only seem to be available in Class 2. Despite these drawbacks, they all leave us intrigued. If these are just experimental modules, as the rumors suggest, then who knows what more refined versions of similar technology may look like. Given that this is only what we have seen so far, merely two months into the new year, this reporter cannot wait to see what the next 10 months will bring.
Hot Rodder. Icor. Hot Rodder will be a recurring feature in which we look in detail at pilot ships encouraging them to share the secrets and stories with the galaxy. Icor in the mythology of the ancient Greeks was the ethereal golden fluid that coursed through the veins of the gods. When demigods or heroes attacked them it would be released like blood. It was a sign of a gods weakness. I chose the name carefully. The ship may not elevate me to quite the status of a god but it's the closest I can get. To match the name I painted the ship gold as well as tuning the weaponry to be bright yellow. I doubt many of the enemies understand the significance of the brightly coloured spectacle before their demise but it matters little. All that does matter is that it's the last thing they see or, if they live, that they grow to fear the colour lest I find them again. Icor is a Ferdelance FDL. Zorgon Peterson's recent collaboration with Saad Kruger has produced the epitome of luxury combat vessels. Excelling in firepower, defence and agility while not compromising on aesthetics it is the ship of choice for the successful modern bounty hunter. But even amongst such excellence Icor is a unique example. I've worked closely with the finest engineers in the galaxy to accentuate her strengths and cover her weaknesses. Let's go over how I have outfitted the ship and what aftermarket modifications I have had installed. In terms of Icor's internals there isn't too much out of the ordinary. It closely matches the choices made by bounty hunters who frequently work with the engineers. So to some readers these choices will be obvious but for our less experienced readers here's a quick insight into the internals of the modern bounty hunters preferred tool of destruction. The most important modifications to the core internals are to the power distributor and the thrusters. The former is modified to enhance the regeneration rate of my systems, engines and weapons capacitors. These regeneration rates are the main choke points in the ships capabilities so maxing them out was the priority here. Unfortunately this comes at the cost of a reduced capacitor size but it's a price worth paying. As for the thrusters performance is king. While the technicalities of thrusters are very complex all you need to know is that the module runs faster and hotter. The heat is a small price to pay for the extreme speeds that result. In addition to these the ships power plant is overcharged to allow me to utilise my weapons of choice about which you'll hear more later. When it comes to bulkheads in order to keep the ship lightweight I've chosen reactive surface composite with a lightweight modification. Everything else is also modified to be lightweight to keep the ship as fast as possible. This costs me jump range due to the undersized frameshift drive but I usually just pay to have the ship transferred to where I need to go. The optional internals, traditionally the FDL's weak point, are filled out to maximum efficiency. A class 5 thermal resistant biweave shield generator keeps the hull protected along with a pair of class 4 rapid charge shield cell banks in an emergency. Icor's shield play methods are to keep the regeneration high and to avoid large amounts of damage at once. The remaining internals help to balance armour resistances along with an interdictor to rip enemies out of supercruise. External mounts and hardpoints. This is where Icor starts to diverge from the average bounty hunting vessel. 
My choices here allow the ship to perform in a manner that few others can. Let's take a look. Unlike many FDLs Icor has only 3 shield boosters. Two of them bolster the shields damage resistances while the third boosts capacity. This boosts my overall shield strength to around 800 megajoules with resistances over 50% across the board. In addition to these I use two heat sink launchers and a chaff launcher all modified to have a higher ammunition capacity. These keep my weapons firing cold and keep others weapons off target. Some of the heat sinks are reserved for the shield cell banks but the rest are for my hard points as you'll see now. Here's the juicy part. The guns. This is where things get very different. Most bounty hunters nowadays run weapons such as plasma accelerators, multi cannons or lasers but there's one weapon they almost all use as a utility. The railgun. Railguns are hot high damage weapons that are generally modified for very specific purposes. Appropriate energy modulation can allow the weapon to interfere with enemy shield cell bank operation. Alternatively specific ammunition and barrel modifications can allow the rounds to penetrate through even the thickest of armour. Many pilots use one of each of these and employ them when necessary as an add-on to their other weapons. To me this is a waste of hard points so I choose a drastic solution. Use 4 of them. All 4 railguns are modified for long range use. They can all hit targets over 5 kilometers away. A number of tediously long modifications also allow them to operate at about 2 thirds of their normal thermal load. Despite this they all still run extremely hot hence the heat sinks mentioned earlier. Three of them are modified for extra armour penetration while the fourth is to knock out enemy shield cells. These weapons are the reason the ship needs an overcharged power plant. Long range modifications come at the cost of a large increase in power draw. Finishing my array of weapons is a class 4 gimbaled multi cannon. As the railguns are so hot I'm not always able to fire them so the multi cannon is good for keeping consistent damage on the opponents. It's also modified with corrosive ammunition to weaken the hull of the enemy once shields are out of the equation. For those interested in the aesthetic I've tuned the weapon colour to 580 nm. I used to use Icor for bounty hunting. I made my name in the galaxy as a hired gun. Nowadays however I mostly use her for sport in the San 2 system. For those of you who are unfamiliar San 2 is home to an independently organised form of combat sport and is known simply as the PvP hub. Here the finest pilots from across the galaxy come to pit themselves and their ships against each other in fast paced combat often in dense ice and asteroid fields. Ships are frequently destroyed though the hub has an organised rescue system to ensure that fights are rarely dangerous for the pilots involved. Fortunately as modern insurance covers modified modules players are not afraid to lose their vessels in combat and so insurance money is the only object. The PvP hub is where Icor has truly shone. In 4 pilot aside situations her ability to lay down high damage from a long range frequently makes me the enemy's main target at the start of a fight. Coupling this with the incredible speed and agility at my disposal I'm able to buy my teammates time to chase down and eliminate the enemy. Even in duelling situations pitting myself against a single enemy pilot 
Icor's ability to control the range of the engagement frequently gives me the edge. As expected long range engagements are where she is strongest. Weak points show when forced to brawl up close though the biweave shields fast regeneration rate prolongs fights in such scenarios. Perhaps my most memorable engagement was in September of last year. The fight took place during the war between Ho Shi Jetcoms Limited and the Freedom Party of Ho Shi. This battle however had nothing to do with the ongoing conflict. The appeals from both sides of the war for aid from independent commanders had attracted many to Ho Shi including one of the galaxy's most notorious group of pilots the Smiling Dog Crew SDC. They are well known as elite combat fanatics. They sought not to participate in the war but simply to find the best pilots this had attracted in order to attempt to defeat them. I have fought them many times before and they knew me as a pilot who was interested in such combat. As such when they were holding one of their ruthless in-house matches they contacted myself and another commander in the system as substitutes. The final lineup was 7 SDC pilots, myself and one other commander from the group known as the Renegades. The format of the match was to be 3 vs 3 vs 3. A highly unusual situation. Little did I know this was only the beginning of the strange circumstances of the upcoming fight. I knew ahead of time that the fight was to be held in the ice rings of Hoshi's 8th planet, a large gas giant. Upon arrival however I was taken aback by the sheer density of the ring system. I've hunted criminals in many resource extraction sites in my career but never before have I seen a ring so densely packed with ice. The frozen chunks tumbled gracefully and silently overlooked by the majestic planet they orbit. Within the layer of cosmic icebergs a thick cold fog blanketed the ring system limiting visibility. This was going to be one dangerous fight and we all knew it. The three teams had been divided such that each one had a federal gunship and two heavy fighters. One team had a federal assault ship FAS and an FDL. The other two including mine had two FDLs each. The three teams started clustered together, no more than a few dozen meters between each ship. Once all ships were in position the call to boost was made over the local comms and everyone's thrusters roared to life. Some ships collided but I managed to pull up and avoid any damage. The ensuing battle lasted for a mere 8 minutes though it felt like an eternity. The fight started with one team being focused upon by both other teams simultaneously. The FAS was targeted first due to its vulnerable modules though Focus quickly switched to an FDL which had collided with a large boulder of ice. I was able to use my railgun's excellent armour penetration to destroy its power plant while in pursuit sending the craft exploding into another piece of ice. During our pursuit the other two teams had destroyed several of each others vessels but after an unfortunately timed collision with a damaged FDL Focus had switched to me. I pulled Icar up out of the rings and flew on the defensive. Our team was the only remaining side with full numbers and I intended to keep it that way as long as possible. It took about 2 minutes for my wingmates to destroy the most aggressive of my pursuers at which point I had burned through all of my shield cells. The fight was already entering its final stages. Our gunship had sustained significant damage prior to the destruction of the enemy gunships so our focus became preserving it. There was a chance to finish the fight with no losses. 
two enemy craft remained, one from each team. The now severely damaged FAS was in heavy pursuit of the gunship. The other FDL and my team engaged in a heavy brawl with it while our gunship tried to hold off the remaining enemy FDL. I backed away from the fight and lined up my railguns. This was my chance to destroy the FAS. I fired three salvos of railgun blasts into it and caused a power plant malfunction. Drifting helplessly through space my wingmate launched a volley of plasma into the FAS and I released one final burst of my railguns. With that the ship exploded. Our attention could finally turn to the remaining FDL. As I pulled up to face our last opponent the ship collided with our gunship causing both shields to collapse. The win was guaranteed but I had to keep my wingmate alive for the clean victory. Our other FDL was not in range so it was up to me. I fired off my final heatsink and let rip my weapons one last time. Boosting to increase my agility I fired 6 bursts into the FDL's power plant. Upon the 6th impact the ships reactor immediately exploded ending the enemies hopes before we had even reduced their hull integrity to zero. It was only due to the manoeuvrability of my ship that I was able to survive the thick deadly field of ice and only due to the range and precision of my railguns that I managed to secure 3 kills. It was my first use of iCore with the current setup of weaponry that I have and I realised what a powerful combination I had created. It is no surprise that since then I have found myself the focus of many enemy teams in fights in which I partake. Some of my comrades within Paradigm, a club for combat oriented pilots, have even created their own railgun based builds for their FDLs after seeing the recording of the battle. I could write pages upon pages detailing all the dangerous predicaments I've been through with iCore. Tales of close calls with pirate lords and their clumsy anacondas and corvettes being chased out of systems by authority vessels that were less than pleased with the presence of a heavily armed vigilante. Over the past couple of years I must have ripped out and modified her internals hundreds of times. Dozens of weapons have occupied her hardpoints from plasma accelerators to multi cannons to the current set of rail guns. She's hardly the same ship I bought back then but somehow she hasn't changed a bit either. The current iteration will surely be superseded in time but underneath everything she remains the same ship. Any pilot will tell you that their ships are more than mere pieces of technology, marvels of engineering though they are. Underneath the metal and paint, the scorch marks and the battered hulls there's something more than a means of transport and defence. It's difficult to explain how an inanimate object can have a personality but I know that such an explanation won't be necessary for those experienced pilots amongst our readers. All of these reasons make Icor stand out to me that much more. She is a testament to modern engineering, a ship capable of truly terrifying displays of power but with that power also comes a truly unique personality demanding a certain deference. I put my trust in this machine every day, trusting that it will keep me safe and it won't let me down treating it as more than a tool to do my bidding. Because of that she hasn't failed me and I'm confident that she never will. If you have a custom modified ship that you'd like to be featured in Hot Rodder feel free to get in contact with us at sagittarius.i at gmail.com Thank 
you for listening to issue 6 of Sagittarius Eye magazine. This issue featured articles written by Julie Clips, Lexic Mice, Lewis Calvert, Minnie Water, R Sharp, Rassidrin, Souverine and Wilfred Sephiroth and was edited by Lewis Calvert, Souverine and Wilfred Sephiroth. This audio edition featured the voices of Burr, Daryl Narr, Aid Levice, Maya Faye, Rini, Rosetta Stone, Spidey 002, Souverine and Wotherspoon and was edited by Aid Levice, Souverine and Wotherspoon. Music was composed and performed by Dustin Midnight Frisco. We'd like to thank our Patreon subscribers for their continued support of our efforts to entertain and inform the galaxy by Commanders for Commanders. For copies of back issues of our magazine, please visit our website at sagittarius-i.com. Sagittarius I was created using assets and imagery from Elite Dangerous with the permission of Frontier Developments PLC for non-commercial purposes. It is not endorsed by nor reflects the views and opinions of Frontier Developments, and no employee of Frontier Developments was involved in the making of it. Sagittarius I.